BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. It's Friday, May 23rd, and you're listening to Inquiring Minds. I'm Chris Mooney. And I'm Andre Viscontis. Each week we bring you a new in-depth exploration of the space where science, politics, and society collide. We endeavor to find out what's true, what's left to discover, and why it all matters. You can find us on Twitter at Inquiring Show, on Facebook at slash Inquiring Minds Podcast, and you can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, Swell, or any other podcasting app. This episode of Inquiring Minds is sponsored by The Great Courses, bringing the world's greatest professors, and me, to your fingertips. With over 500 courses on science, history, philosophy, music, and more, The Great Courses are available for digital download and streaming, or on old-fashioned DVDs and CDs. Best of all, you can listen to or watch The Great Courses at your own pace, without the pressure of homework or exams. And now, for a limited time only, The Great Courses is giving our listeners an offer of 80% off the original price of one of its courses. It's called Practicing Mindfulness, an Introduction to Meditation. Go to thegreatcourses.com slash inquiringminds to find out more. Once again, that's thegreatcourses.com slash inquiringminds. So, last week... We had some stunning news, especially if you follow climate change. Basically, we learned from not one but two scientific papers that the great ice sheet of West Antarctica, which contains roughly three meters or 10, 11 feet worth of sea level rise, now appears to be irrevocably destabilized. It's going. It hasn't gone yet, but it's going. It'll take a long time to slip into the sea. But the point of these papers is it's looking unstoppable, so we have to think about whole new coastlines. Now, I think this is maybe the gravest thing happening to this planet, so I wanted to interview a scientist who really, really could explain to us what it means. And so I turned to Richard Alley. He is a celebrated glaciologist at Penn State University, and he's also quite the science communicator. He even had his own PBS show, which you might have seen, called Earth, the Operator's Manual. Uh, and sure enough, he told us everything we need to know about this latest news, and none of what, as, you, as you'll hear, none of it made me any less worried. But I just want to play one clip that comes early in the conversation where Dr. Alley was explaining to me something about these gigantic ice sheets that few people know, uh, but when they know it, it'll blow your mind, which is the gravitational effect that they exert due to their huge mass on the ocean around them, pulling the ocean inward and upward so the sea rises as you approach an ice sheet. Let's listen to that. 
everything attracts everything else gravitationally, but the attraction between you and you and your computer screen is really pretty small. Uh, these ice sheets are so huge that they really do pull the ocean towards them a little bit, and that is one of these complexities that probably is not going to be good news for us by the time we're done with this discussion, because if Antarctica shrinks and puts that water in the ocean. Um, the ocean raises around the world, but then Antarctica is pulling the ocean towards it less strongly. And as that that extra water around Antarctica spreads around the world, we will get a little more sea level rise in the U.S. than the global average. So what do you make of that, Indre? Pretty mind-blowing. Yeah, I mean, I already knew that if a lot of ice melted, it would cause a sea level to rise, right? That makes a lot of sense. But the idea that there's a gravitational pull involved hadn't occurred to me until I heard this clip. And it is really frightening to think that, that, that is, this really is a vicious cycle now. And it's, it's scary. Yeah, you don't play with geophysics. You just don't. Yeah. You know, <laughs> the processes are too big. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So uh, I'm curious to hear what else he has to say. But first, let's talk about some science in the news. You know, one thing that's been hitting the news is a new edited edition of the journal Social Psychology, uh, in which a couple of scientists have taken it upon themselves to try to encourage people to replicate major findings in social psychology. So social psychology has gotten a bad rap in the past because sometimes, you know, it, the, the studies that have been done haven't been re replicated. And so people have wondered whether the effects that they have found really are true, or if they're just artifacts of the way the study was conducted. So a series of social psychologists decided to start what was called the replication project, in which they would try to replicate 27 major social psychology studies. And although, from a scientific perspective, that seems like a really great idea. I mean, we want to make sure that these effects are real. And the only way to do that is by replicating it. And of course, you want different labs to replicate it, because you don't want the same artifact in a lab to just create the same artificial result. But there's also been some pushback in the social psychological community because it seems as though sometimes these authors sort of acted more as bullies than as champions of social psychology. So let me give you an example. If someone said to me, I'm going to replicate, Indre, one of your high-resolution fMRI studies, and you know, I'm going to do the same things that you did in my scanner, um, and it turns out that that after doing the study, you know, we got very different results. Well, first off, I should say that it's very difficult to do some of these technological experiments. And, you know, you need to account for a lot of potential confounds and a lot of difficulties. So for example, in the high resolution scanning um, of the medial temporal lobe, which is where my work was, you have to deal with the fact that the ear canals can cause a blowout of a signal in the fMRI scanner. So you have to work around that. And if you don't work around it properly, you won't get a signal and therefore you'll get a null result. So the point is, is that a lot of these authors who, of the original papers have not had the chance to respond to the, the you know, failure to replicate their studies. And so now it's, it's caused a bit of a controversy. It's, I mean, you have to think that in the long run, replication is a good thing. I mean, in fact, what, what was strangest to me about this is, okay, I don't know about how they went about doing it. And obviously, you need to be in close touch with whoever you're replicating their work. But I mean, I was surprised to hear that a lot of the top studies were not had not already been replicated, right? Because, you know, yeah, I mean, I mean, there, you know, there are two arguments for that. One is, 
you know, as, as a young scientist, do you really want to spend your career trying to do what someone else has already done before you? I mean, it's not quite as glamorous as going after yeah. your own questions. It's no less important, of course, because we want to make sure that, you know, the, the studies do hold up even over time, especially in social psychology, where you can argue that culture can have an influence. And as generations, you know, move forward, culture can change. So, yeah. you know, we want to make sure yeah. that, that this, these are still uh, effects that, that, are, that resonate with the current uh, popular culture. But, you know, I also am sensitive to this idea that, you know, if you have a person conduct a study in a subpar way, you know, they might get a null result. Um, and, and what does that mean? So although I applaud this effort uh, to make, especially in social psychological studies, more rigorous or, or rep replicated, etc. Um, you know, I think we also have to proceed with caution in, in terms of throwing out the baby with the bathwater. Yeah, fair enough. I just want to say as a journalist, it was always my approach when writing about social psychology that not you, you rank the evidence uh you give it different strengths based upon you know what its status is in science. And if you have one study, and it's the only time one study has found anything, then you rank the evidence low. If you have um, a meta-analysis where you can actually look at all the studies and you can analyze them statistically, and then you really... I mean, that's very strong. Or if you have a body of studies that all find the same thing. So, like... Like personality is politics, one of the big findings of social psychology. There's personality traits that correlate with politics. It's not one study. It's like all the studies, you know, it's, it's not, it's not ever not found, you know, and that's how you know it's true. It, so I, again, I mean, I, I think that, I think that replication is good. Um, also good is, is people, you know, it doesn't have to be the exact same study, but it's coming at the same conclusion from a lot of angles. Uh, which is also really important. Yeah, I think converging evidence is really the way forward, right. right? We need to we need to see that the same effect holds up when you look at it from different perspectives. And in some ways, I think that that might be a more useful way of evaluating an effect than simply replicating what someone has done before. Um, you right. know, try to yeah. try to find the same effect, but looking at it from a different point of view. And some of the best papers now. I mean, when when I see a beautiful paper in this field, often what you get is you get five experiments or something three to five. And they are actually trying to validate one hypothesis with five different designs, mm -hmm. right? So, yep. like, we know if it if it works this way, this way, this way, and this way, we're probably not detecting something extraneous. We're probably actually detecting what we wanted. So, yeah, to get published in the big social psychology journals these days, it's not enough to have one little study. You need to have you know three three to five. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We did it like this, and then we also have survey data. So. So it's a cool topic and an actually interesting trans transition into what I wanted to talk about, which is uh, testing a, a social psychology hypothesis. And uh, I, I'm interested to hear what you think. So this is a topic that's fascinated me, maybe because in my family, I am a firstborn son. Uh, so there's this research on the proposed link between birth order and political conservatism. So I should be conservative based on this theory. And we'll talk a little bit later about whether I am, okay? But but this goes a way back, and the most prominent person to articulate it is Frank Sullivan, who's a psychologist, University of California, Berkeley. He wrote this book that was much discussed in 96 called Born to Rebel, Birth Order, Family Dynamics, and Creative Lives. And basically, he's looking over history at all of the second sons or third sons or third daughters and how they were these creative types, but not really, not very traditional. Um and the theory behind it is Darwinian, which is that the first sibling, you know, there's only the parents give you all their attention because there is no other sibling. So you get lots of resources from the parents. And therefore, you want you like the status quo, right? You don't want things to change. This is great. Uh, versus the later born siblings, they have to struggle. 
But the idea has been hard to test because you have to control for a lot of other variables to make sure you're picking up the importance of birth order rather than something else. So in a new study, this is in personality and individual differences, a team of Italian researchers did this. They looked at 96 Italian families controlling for lots of things, gender, age, and religiosity of the children, education, religiosity, and age of first childbirth for the parents. And they partially confirm Soloway's thesis. They find that birth order does have an effect on politics after they control for these variables. So the earlier, you know, the firstborn children are more conservative than the secondborn. They only looked at the first and second. But they found that the parents' conservatism, or lack thereof, didn't have any influence uh, on the children. So let me just uh, conclude with a remark on my own family. I'm the firstborn. I actually am the conservative, I think. In my case, that equals center-left, but I think that my brother and sister are left of me. So I think that would that would hold up. And notably, like a complete idiot, in 2003, I was in favor of the Iraq War, something for which I am ashamed. And my brother and sister, because I was being this contrarian liberal, like, you know, bending back toward the center, even the right. My brother and sister were not. They gave me a complete hell over it, and I eventually had to apologize. They were right, and I was wrong. Well, that's very big of you, Chris. <laughs> and I have to say, there's one uh, one sentence right at the beginning of the, the paper that really made me snicker. And, you know, it's, it's kind of awesome. So let me just read it to you. Firstborns, having experienced the trauma of being dethroned by laterborns, tend to identify <laughs> with rules and authorities to achieve recognition from parents and to preserve their own personal position in the family, becoming power-hungry conservatives. <laughs> it's just... <laughs> poetry <laughs> so uh you might i don't know this yeah. you might Go have ahead. guessed i'm a second born <laughs> um and so yes I, I i do think probably i'm somewhat less conservative than my brother especially in our terms of our choices of of careers um you know he's he's an orthopedic surgeon and i'm not um so you know you're an artist <laughs> I'm an come artist. on this is like lefty stuff yeah totally totally lefty stuff <laughs> um but in any case i you know i think that there there is there's definitely something to this idea um and you know I, my question though then is what happens to only children you know what, what if you're an only child yeah, i don't know you know you don't actually get dethroned by a later born <laughs> um so that i would be interested to, to find a follow-up study in in on this to find out what happens to only children i don't know if it's been looked at you would have to think that it's well, there's nothing to compare them to, so um, there's nobody reacting against them. Um, right, but, but you, you could still you... see what their you know scores are on the portrait values questionnaire that they used. Right? Did they did they seem to be more um, along with you know more aligned with firstborns or more aligned with secondborns? No, that's a good idea, and you just wonder if it's out there already. If somebody's looked at it. It's probably in Soloway's book mentioned at least. Probably. <laughs> probably. We're bad journalists. Uh, <laughs> No, well, no, I, you don't have to have completely read the book just for this little exchange, but, uh, but it's, it's an interesting question. Maybe one of our listeners will email us with the answer. Uh, so with that, let's take a short break, and we'll be back with my interview with Richard Alley. So you listen to Inquiring Minds already, and that means you're the kind of person who is intellectually curious. You like to learn. You don't ever want to stop. Learning is what you do all the time. And in full disclosure, I do have a course with the great courses. And so I'm a particularly, you know, avid fan of what they do. But even before I started to work with them, I loved the notion of being able to just go online and listen to lectures by some of the greatest professors in the world on, on these engaging topics. So we recently watched 
one of the great courses, called Practicing Mindfulness, an Introduction to Meditation. And this is by Eastern philosophy professor Mark Musi from Rhodes College. And it's a course that, you know, I think that it's relevant to all of us because we all need sometimes to slow down in the world in which we live. We need to focus our brains and we need to figure out how to adapt to the pace of life. And I have to say that some of the science behind meditation and its effects on cognition, attention, and focus uh, are really pretty compelling. I mean, the field is still new and there's still a lot of work to be done. Um, But in this course, you actually do learn how mindfulness can offer deep and lasting benefits for cognitive function and emotional health and even your physical health. Right, and it doesn't have to be woo-woo. And one of the points that he makes is that this is not necessarily a religious experience If you don't want it to be, you can practice meditation in a totally secular way, which I know will be important to many of our listeners. For a limited time, The Great Courses is giving a special offer to our listeners. So you can order Practicing Mindfulness, an introduction to meditation, and get 80% off the original price. So don't wait. Go to thegreatcourses.com slash inquiringminds to take advantage of this special offer. Once again, that's thegreatcourses.com slash inquiringminds. Richard Alley, welcome to Inquiring Minds. Chris, it's a pleasure to be here. I've wanted to have you on our show for uh, for some time, so it is a pleasure on my end as well. And the recent staccato of news that we've had about the vulnerability of the polar ice sheets, your area of expertise, uh, really, really seemed like the perfect moment. So to start out, I don't think people generally grasp what a big deal an ice sheet is. (laughs) So I I wanted to see if first you could just give us a sense of scale. Right. So so an ice sheet is, is two miles thick in the metal. The very deepest places push more towards three miles. And for Antarctica, it's a whole continent covered in this pile of old snow squeezed to ice. It's just immense. It's sort of unbelievable that these things are there. To further impress upon uh, people how big a deal this is, I just found this out, and maybe you can explain this. My understanding is that there's so much mass to these ice sheets that, because of gravity... They pull water towards them, so the sea level slopes down away from them. Is that right? That's absolutely correct. Yeah, Everything attracts everything else gravitationally, but the attraction between your, you and your computer screen is really pretty small. Uh, these ice sheets are so huge that they really do pull the ocean towards them a little bit. And that is one of these complexities that probably is not going to be good news for us by the time we're done with this discussion because if Antarctica shrinks – and puts that water in the ocean. Um, The ocean raises around the world, but then Antarctica is pulling the ocean towards it less strongly. And as that that extra water around Antarctica spreads around the world, we will get a little more sea level rise in the U.S. than the global average. Wow. So, I mean, I think that just blows your mind. We forget that that there are things that large <laughs> Indeed, on yes. the planet that they can do that. And and just one more fact that I think we really need to get out of the way to help people understand this is, you know, how much sea level rise or how much water uh, do they contain? 
Right. So if you you start melting ice on the Earth, the mountain glaciers are somewhere less than half a meter, you know, a foot, a foot and a half, something like that. And then we start running out of mountain glaciers. Greenland's ice is at about 23 feet, 7.3 meters of globally average sea level rise. Antarctica is a lot more than that. It's it's up closer to 60 meters with um, three of that and a little over three in West Antarctica and the rest in East Antarctica. So total, you're looking at, you know, 200 feet of sea level here. If it were all to go, we're hopeful that some of that is not in play, but enough of it is in play to get uh, a lot of people on the coasts fairly nervous. Wow. So, and and there actually, there must be places on planet Earth, on land now, where, you know, they're 200 feet, 200 feet high from where the sea level is now, where there used to be a beach. Yes, there there are beaches around the world. We we look at raised beaches. I have actually helped a tiny bit in mapping some raised beaches. A lot of um, the blueberries of Maine are grown on raised beaches. And this comes about both because sea level used to be higher. And it also comes about because of vertical motions of the Earth's crust in response to ice growing and shrinking and other things. But there really are many places that we see evidence of sea levels having been higher in the past when there was less ice on the planet. So with that background uh, in place, it turns out that in the past week, we've got some stunning news. Basically, we've learned from NASA researchers and also researchers at the University of Washington in Seattle that it looks like both Greenland and West Antarctica, they're saying, are more vulnerable to melting than previously thought, albeit for different reasons. So can you help us unpack uh, this latest science and what it signifies? Sure. There's a whole bunch of science in here. Um, if if I may, um, this two-mile-thick continent-wide pile that we call an ice sheet, what they do is they spread under their own weight. Basically, if you poured water on the table, it will spread into something very wide and thin, but it's still a pile. It ends somewhere. Uh, pancake batter doesn't spread as fast. The ice sheets spread slowly, but they spread. So snow piles on top, it flows down to the coast, and it um, either melts or it breaks off to make icebergs. If you turn up temperature in the air and melt more of the ice, the ice sheet gets smaller and the ocean rises. If the pile spreads faster, you make icebergs faster, you take ice that was not floating and make it float, and that also raises sea level. Uh, What we find in Antarctica is when the ice spreads down to the coast, it does not immediately break off to make icebergs. It remains attached as what we call an ice shelf. It flows over the ocean while still stuck to the ice. It scrapes past the rocky sides of fjords or it runs aground on local seafloor highs. And that friction from the rocky fjord sides or the seafloor high holds back the ice shelf, which holds back the giant pile that is, is could be higher sea level. We're seeing in Antarctica warmer waters getting under the ice shelves. That melts them on the bottom. That removes some of the friction. That lets the pile spread faster. And that raises sea level. So, And this has been happening sooner than we initially expected scientifically. And um, what has come out recently are new improved, refined, beautiful data, Um, some of it from groundwork, most of it from satellite, a lot from aircraft as well, showing that the the faster spreading and the thinning in response to this warmer water getting under the ice shelves 
is really happening in key places of the West Antarctic Ice Sheet. Um, it's ongoing and it's pointing in a direction that eventually will become uh, – it'll run away. There's sort of tipping points in this system and there's fairly high confidence that too much push can cause this to sort of run away, get a rapid change, um, centuries or maybe decades um, that would raise sea level a lot. And then there's a new model result that you take what we know about the system today, you put it in the computer, you turn it on, Ian Jockin and co-workers at Washington. And what they found is that it's likely that the fuse has already been lit on that, that it will burn for a while as the ice slowly thins and retreats. It may be centuries, but at some point it will pass a tipping point and then sort of boom, it will change much faster and put that, that ice into the ocean. So what you're saying is, and I understand the ice shelves, you know, they've got ocean underneath them. So if it's warmer, you know, then obviously they're they're changing their relationship with the ground um, that's, you know, submerged solid ground. But but once once you get away from the ocean and you get the the pile of ice on land, what you're saying is that it's not going to stay on the land. That is what the new paper says, is that um, the, the three meters are a little more of globally average sea level, you know, 10, 11 feet, um, may already have been committed to going from being on land to being in the ocean. Got it. So, and, and we're seeing, you know, on the internet, everybody's got these pictures now of all your your favorite famous places submerged. So, you know, like you need scuba gear uh, in Miami. Um and yet, back in September, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, which I, you contribute to, um, it seemed to suggest that the highest possibility for, for the sea level increase by the end of this century was about three feet or about one meter. At, and that's the, that was the high end, as they put it. So is that still something we expect or does this change that? Right. So, so far, this paper didn't really change that because in these model runs, it waited beyond the end of the century before the really fast um, changes happened. And so it doesn't have to change that. However, in the paper, the, the authors noted that they did not run the worst case scenario. And this gets, you know, this gets a little bit frustrating for us as scientists, and it gets more frustrating for real people out there in the real world. That um, if the most likely thing is a is a couple of feet, then you say, so what are the uncertainties? By the end of the century, we sort of expect a couple of feet of sea level rise, and then we say, well, it could be a little bit less than that. Can't be a lot less than that. Could be a little more than that. Or there's a slight chance it could be a lot more than that. And there's a very strong bias asymmetry skewness in, in the uncertainties so that you have some estimate. This is what we think is most likely. And then the uncertainties are a little better, a little worse, a lot worse. And I'm assuming that flooding the coast is bad, so I'm calling that worse. But um, across climate change, over and over again, we see that distribution of uncertainties. Here is what we expect as the, the most likely thing. It might not be quite that bad. It could be a little worse than that. It could be a lot worse than that. But we don't see a way that it's a lot better than that. Would it be fair to say that the new findings, though, are already sort of in the you know, the bad news coming sooner than expected category? I think that 
presuming you take your view and you you fuzz it a little and say we will consider things after 2100, um, yeah, these are not good news findings. So why does it take um, a while? I mean, you know, if you if it's going to be ultimately for West Antarctica three meters, or I've I've even seen people saying a little more. Why does it take so long if it's already destabilized? Right. So so um. You can think of this piece of West Antarctica as a traffic jam from a merge. Um, and it's, and, and it's one in which you've sort of got multiple decks merging together vertically as well as squeezing in horizontally with new lanes coming in and what have you. So you've ne- blocked off some of the lanes and so the cars are having to funnel into a, a narrow place and they're coming in vertically as well as horizontally. And there's this huge merge that you take something that is um, a couple of miles thick and 100 miles wide and you squeeze it way down and it's coming out through a place that's well less than a mile thick and not nearly that wide. And if it starts to thin a little more and where it starts to float backs up a little more, um, it gets to a deeper, wider place. And then it can dump the icebergs faster and thin a little more and float a little more and back up to a place where it can dump them even faster. And if you can think of your merge and then pulling all the orange barrels away and letting the cars go faster, it will take a while for the traffic jam to unplug for the cars to get into their right lanes and get up to speed. And so even if you've pulled the orange barrels away and you say, okay, we have now fixed a traffic jam, it will take a while to get everybody out of there in the same way that it's still stuck in this narrow spot. But if it backs up, then things start going a lot faster. And let's also shift to Greenland because there was some news about Greenland and I had always thought based on, I mean, my relatively cursory reading that Greenland was the most vulnerable place. And But this maybe maybe it's not but this new research suggests that a lot more of greenland's ice is under is below sea level so it can actually be touched by warm ocean water than right. before so so the greenland picture is it has these glorious deep fjords that if you have ever sailed up one they're just truly amazing things going up you know above sea level and below. Uh, The ice sheet used to be bigger and carving these fjords, but under them, it still has these fjords. And then back under it, there's a very shallow, broad basin and then a a mountain range as well. And so, so Greenland, once it pulls out of the ocean, Greenland will mostly be a very large ice cube. And in a warming world, once it gets too warm, it will be a a large ice cube waiting to melt. if right now you can hurt Greenland by warming the waters around it and causing the um, the ice shelves to melt and, and undermining the, the ice cliffs that form. And so you can force Greenland to shrink by dumping more icebergs from warming water. Um, you also can hurt Greenland's ice by making the air warmer and melting it. And the iceberg path is is the one that can go fastest. Um, and then the slower one is melting it from warmer air above. And what the new paper has said is that the old maps didn't have quite enough deep fjords extending quite enough inland. And so there's a little more ability to dump icebergs than we had previously thought. It is important to note that the maps of 10 years ago, the maps that went into um, some of the earlier IPCC assessments, for example, look 
fairly bad. Um, the new map is clearly showing many longer and deeper fjords. There's been a lot of work between the 10-year-old data and what we have now, um, some of it by a group that um, I have a tiny affiliation with called Cresis, which is a NSF-funded project working with NASA's IceBridge. And they worked really hard to gain the ability to fly over these fjords with a radar and figure out how deep they are, and they did. And now this new study is using sort of physics and other data to interpolate between the flight lines. It's a small change from these newest data. It's a big change from the older data. Uh, it doesn't yet say Greenland is about fall into the ocean, run for the hills. But it does make Greenland look a little more vulnerable than we thought. And Greenland, 7.3 meters or about 23 feet of globally average sea level, is a big chunk. And even if we've committed to the loss of West Antarctica's ice, we have not yet committed to the loss of most of Greenland's ice with fairly high confidence. That is still a decision, a, a tipping point that is in front of us that we may or may not get to in part based on decisions that we make. I want, I want to also ask you about um, feedbacks uh, that make these processes worse. As my understanding is because these ice sheets are so high um, into the al- you know, in altitude into the atmosphere – uh, that it's actually colder air, much colder air on top. And so if they shrink, then they also get down among warmer air closer to the earth. Uh, and so then they can also melt faster. So there's a there's a runaway process there. Is that right? Oh, you're absolutely correct. So um, it's we're fairly confident that if Greenland did not have ice, the, the ice sheet would not regrow in the current climate. And so as you thin it, um, it gets warmer on top. That makes it more likely to melt. And so it gets to the point that, that it has um, troubles hanging on and it will go faster as it goes. So you were on this National Academy of Sciences panel last year looking at the threat of abrupt climate change. And now we're going back to West Antarctica. The committee said that, you know, in other words, a a rapid sea level rise, because one of these things somehow manages to go fast. You said that for West Antarctica, it was plausible uh, with an unknown, although probably low probability this century. So does this change that in any way? It it certainly raises additional questions. And, you know, mm-hmm. I, I helped on that and, and I think probably that most scientists would, would still stick with that, that it's probably a low probability this century. But there's a number of, of questions, a number of physical questions that that – I almost hate to admit how much fun we're having studying these, but oh, <laughs> but we are, and it's just it's just a truly fascinating system, and it's a very hard system. So if you go out and look at the seafloor around Antarctica or around Greenland or around the ice that used to be on Canada or England or wherever, um, you see the record of how the ice shrank after the last ice age. And what you see almost always is that the ice sat somewhere for centuries or millennia making giant piles of sediment that it had eroded from the rocks. And then it moved to somewhere else and it moved so rapidly that it didn't leave any record of its passing. 
occasionally you see a place where it paused for a few months during a winter and that leaves a record. But most places it didn't pause for a few months. It just went. And so the behavior of these things is they sit, they sit, they sit, woo, they go somewhere else. And there's all kinds of things that stabilize them where they sit and all kinds of things that destabilize them when they're running to the new place. And it's a little like predicting a switch rather than a dial. Dials are easy. Turn it a little bit. You get a little response. Switches, you put it a little – don't push hard enough and it doesn't flip. And push hard enough and exactly how hard do you have to push to flip it – is a hard thing. And so we're trying to get at a system here in West Antarctica that we know for very, very good physical reasons is going to be really hard to predict. Let's talk a little bit more about the last interglacial. My my understanding is that this is, I mean, this is the last time uh, that a, a lot of ice was lost. And, and my understanding is that we know that it happened faster than it is happening now. Is that right? In other words, there is there is a rapid process that has happened in Earth's history. It, it is clear that sea level has risen faster in the past than what we're seeing now. Um, at the end of the last ice age, there were very rapid rises, although that was when there was a little more ice on the Earth. And then there's this evidence from the previous warm time, so back sort of 130,000 years, that the sea level rose rapidly to high levels. And then it stepped up a little more and fairly quickly. And sort of the, the direct evidence is um, something West Antarctic sized or a little bigger and probably less than a thousand years, but with a little hemming and hawing on how much less. And there are ways of going at this. You go find corals that are now sitting well above sea level off of Australia or in, in the um, Bahamas or something like this, and you date them. But the dating uncertainties are enough centuries that you can't see much less than a thousand years. There's some other even uh, more complicated ones to explain. But the suggestion is that there was a, a West Antarctic-sized rise that was pretty fast after – most of the the Ice Age ice sheets, the things that covered Boston and New York were gone. And it's not really possible to rule out uh, something very fast. So a West Antarctic-sized uh, rise in, in a century or something like that. It's I don't think the data allow you to exclude that, but the data don't require it. So we look back – and try really, really hard to, to read the record. And it says, yeah, a lot of rise, even when it was warm, a fairly fast rise. It could have been really fast on a human economic time scale, and we can't quite be sure. Another thing that I think is illuminating is to say, um, you know, comparing our where we are now with these past periods, I mean, even if it takes a long time, how much have we already lost? Uh, you know, in other words, how much is it just a slow motion loss, but it's already destined to be gone? Yeah, so so we're we're moderately confident that that you know there was a huge amount of ice that covered Chicago and Boston and what have you, and when that was here, the the ocean was three hundred and some feet lower than it is now, um, and we're pretty sure that we we melted a lot of that, and that then we got to a fairly 
a happy place for the ice sheets, that the ice sheets really could have kept East Antarctica and West Antarctica and Greenland as we know them. And eventually, in some tens of thousands of years, they could have started into another ice age um, if we had allowed that to happen. Um, and so, um, so we we think that what is here now as big ice is not responding to the end of the Ice Age 20,000 years ago. It is responding to things that – primarily to things that we are doing to it now. So what is the – I mean I heard this uh, glaciologist speak. His name is Jason Box. I'm, I'm sure you know him. Um, and he said that if you look at past eras of the planet's history – and I forget which one he's referring to. It's way back before the last interglacial – um, but basically where you had the same amount of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, like 400 parts per million is where we are now. Um, he, he inferred that you've baked in 69 feet of sea level rise. Uh, is that reasonable? It, it is true that if you take long times in the past and you take CO2 levels and you um, take sea levels, that we're at a, a CO2 level now – and heading higher uh, that's associated which, with a much higher sea level. Um, we might have a buffer because of what you discussed, that high is cold and cold is survivable, that the ice sheet might be able to survive for a while at a high CO2 that would have prevented its growth. And so we we tend to think that the CO2 we're at now – actually would allow survival of Greenland and um, East Antarctica's ice, or at least most of them, even if it's already committed to taking out um, West Antarctica's ice. Um, but we're not showing signs of stopping right at 400 at this point. And so, so it's worrisome that we're at a CO2 that in the past was associated with high levels. If you really want to play it safe, you'd, you'd take the number and say we're already at a point that really doesn't danger the ice. But the central estimate is that, that most of what's on Greenland and most of what's on East Antarctica could survive where we are now even though they wouldn't grow at this temperature if we took them away because of this elevation effect on temperature. Okay, but I mean, even so, I mean, 10, 10 feet or whatever from West Antarctica, I don't know exactly what that does to uh, the world. I know that people live by the coast. What, is it, what, what does that translate into? I mean, how many places are, are we basically inundating? Where are yeah. a lot of people? So, so you think about the the deltas and um, the the highest storm surge from um, Hurricane Sandy or Superstorm Sandy was just under thirteen feet, and a whole lot of places it was ten feet or less. Um, and we're looking at you know eleven feet or something like that from from West Antarctica, plus a little thermal expansion and some mountain glacier melting that are already uh, on the table. And so you can sort of think of um, the storm surge of Hurricane Sandy, something vaguely in the, that neighborhood for most of the the coastline of the world. And, you know, that came with wind and it came with rain and it came with waves. So it's not identical thing. But but if you just think of that storm water coming into places that we know about on the coast, that's maybe a useful scale. <laughs> right. So in other words, a lot of New York and yeah. maybe New Orleans with its levees 
would I'm not sure that it would overtop those, but it's one of the few places that has levees. Right. So you think about either abandoning coasts, um, putting lots of things up on stilts, uh, hardening coasts, building giant walls and barriers and other sorts of things. But, um, you know, if you've ever landed at Boston's Logan Airport or the San Francisco Airport or a whole lot of airports and you look out the window and you say, you know, we're not 10 feet above that, are we? Um, no. <laughs> so so you, you start thinking about the costs going up and probably the costs go up faster than the ocean does. And this is something that the economists still need to work on a little bit. But when there's a little sea level rise, you've lived through storms, you've lived through tides, you sort of have a coast that knows what's going on and you you deal with it. You put on some Band-Aids, you patch things, you move a few things. When the sea level rise is small, you sort of deal with it. And as the sea level rise gets bigger, at some point you say, you know, we can't just deal with it anymore. We need higher levees or we need to move back or we need to do something because our our band-aids aren't working anymore. And so it is likely that the the cost of dealing with sea level will go up faster than the sea level does. Uh, among many other interesting things, that makes our decisions essentially more valuable now. So um, if West Antarctica is committed to going and we're committed to 10 feet of sea level or 11, then the water that could come from Greenland would have more impact, more cost because it would be added on top of that. And as you put those huge changes, building walls big enough to stop that, you think gets very expensive and you think about losing much more area that you can't defend. And so in some sense, commitment to loss of of West Antarctica makes the decision about Greenland more important. It makes Greenland's ice more valuable, essentially. But also, like, who wants to live uh, on the other side of a wall where you know that the water <laughs> on the other side of the wall is way higher than you are when you stand on the ground. I mean, isn't that incredibly unsettling? I, I mean, all it takes is any storm and it's coming right over. Yeah, there are certainly people that do it in, in the Netherlands or in, in New Orleans. But yeah. if you think about um, the stories of those places, what their art is and, and so on, I think there's an awareness. And, you know, New Orleans after Hurricane Katrina had a very, very strong awareness. So, I mean, we've covered all this. And, and look, it's, it's just to me staggering. Um, I, I wrote an article when the news came out about West Antarctica, and this was its title, and it's, uh, you know, 750,000 page views now, it said, this is what a holy shit moment for global warming looks like, and apparently that's what people wanted to hear. It made them open their eyes and say, my God. Uh, so, but, and yet, I don't see anything happening. If this doesn't trigger a wake-up call, what triggers a wake-up call? <laughs> Um, you're the communications expert, and, and you probably have more insight to politics than I do. So, so I, I no, I'm stunned. I, I thought that if I thought that at some point people would say, "Oh my God." Yeah, it's. I mean, I I have to admit that you know I've been in this field long enough to be turning gray, and I think there was an expectation twenty years ago that the scientists would come out and they would would present the information, and people would use it. Um, in some very real sense, 
climate projections and weather forecasts are are quite similar. Uh, we often do them in the same departments, the same agencies, the same buildings. They use a lot of the same tools. It's the you know, one of them is what's about to happen and the other is an average of a lot of what's about to happen. But otherwise, climate and weather have a lot in common. And it's fairly rare that anyone says, oh, your forecast of rain today is political and I'm going to, to get excited on one side or the other about the politics of a rain forecast. We know that weather forecasts are not perfect, but we know that they really are skillful. We know that they really are valuable. We know that, that industry, we know that, that the military, we know lots of people get weather forecasts because they use them and they take that information and they make themselves better off. Climate forecasts are the same. Saying that warming melts ice and that raises sea level is not Republican. It is not Democrat. It is not conservative. It is not liberal. It is the best science. It is not perfect, but it's useful. And we can take that and make ourselves better off if we then apply it to our decision making. It's also the simplest of physics, isn't it? <laughs> it is. And I expect that eventually that the, 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 we can use this – and put it with what we believe in and what we, where we want to go in ways that will make us better off. And because using it makes us better off, I expect eventually that it will show up in, in the halls of, of power and people will, will use it to make policies. But it's been an interesting and, and not exactly straight line to get there so far. Okay, uh, one last thing that I have to ask you, because again, when you when one sees this news and one realize, realizes what it means, one says, my God, um, you know, the planet will not be the same. Um, there are would-be geoengineers who have always said that, you know, when it looks bad enough, we will probably want to do something about it by interfering with the climate artificially and cooling it down. Uh, so that, you know, I don't know if you could stop West Antarctica by doing that, but maybe you could stop Greenland. So yes. what what are your thoughts on that? Right. Um, so I think the sort of block the sun partially and, and cool it off probably does not do anything to help West Antarctica. Um, maybe, 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 but probably not. Uh, Greenland, you might be able to. I have in the past said that I'm excited about having research on this. I think we'll learn a lot. Um, if we burn and burn and burn and we take off all the mountaintops and we frack everything and we do the oil shales and we get to the point where the tropics are so hot that, that they risk being uninhabitable outside of your air conditioning, I think we're going to want to block the sun. Um, but personally, I think that the whole suite of issues – um, getting some government or intergovernment uh, to to control the climate and to decide where we're going to go and we're all going to agree on that and we're going to agree on doing that for millennia. Um, I think that the the decision making, the the trusting that are are so far away that probably. It's easier to think about building a sustainable energy system than it is agreeing on some 
some joint government agency that's going to control the world's climate. Uh, maybe I'm wrong, but but uh, there's a long story about a history of cloud seeding experiments back in the 60s along the, the Maryland-Pennsylvania border that led to people passing laws in Pennsylvania about research on cloud seeding and somebody having a, a whole shot in their door. And people got really, really excited when somebody – when they thought somebody was controlling their weather. So I guess – and this is where we can wrap up. I guess – the upshot of this is that while it may not happen by the end of 2100, it sure sounds like we are now committed to at least 10 feet of sea level, and it's unlikely that there's much that we can do about it. So uh, it, I got that right, didn't I? That's right. You know, the, we like wow. a whole bunch of models run by different groups in different ways. Don't let the first paper be the last word. But that's the best estimate we've got now. But if we've committed to 3.3 meters from West Antarctica, we haven't committed to losing Greenland. We haven't committed to losing most of East Antarctica. Those are still – out there for us. And if anything, this new news just makes our decisions more important and more powerful. Okay. Well, incredibly sobering, but thank you so much, Richard Alley, for all your knowledge and wisdom on this, uh, what might be the most important topic that there is for the world. Thank you. So as I mentioned earlier, you know, it never really occurred to me that gravity is a major force that we have to reckon with now that the ice sheets are melting. And, you know, I started to wonder if there wasn't a way in which we could solve this problem and some of our other problems, too. So <laughs> one thing that... The very big magnet? <laughs> very, yeah. Either, or, or, you know, like, like just think about it. Like, what, what if know. we created yeah. more mass? Like, what if we took all the trash, you know, that's floating out in the oceans and kind yeah. of like, you know, sent it down into Antarctica and kind of stapled it to the ice sheets? Like, would we be able to create, oh, you know, enough mass to create this gravitational pull? I mean, probably not. That's, uh, but. <laughs> I'm thinking I, I'm thinking that the scale you would be dealing with would completely overwhelm. I mean, I, I was just researching this. The the Antarctic ice sheet is I'm, I'm, I'm going to get it wrong, but it's in the its extent is in the millions of square miles. Yeah, so, I think like five point I mean, four million or something. I saw that number yeah, somewhere. So it's 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 ginormous, and uh, and that's the thing is that human beings you don't don't play uh, with things that are bigger than you <laughs> that you don't fully understand, and uh, you know the 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 hubris, you know, and the the lack of caution, and you know, it's not going to be us; it's going to be our grandkids. Right. Yeah. I mean, maybe it'll maybe it'll be us, but it's probably going to be our grandkids. And I could just picture them shaking a fist. Yeah. I mean, I have to say that up until really up until this show, I had sort of, you know, yes, I know this is it's bad for me. It's like eating sugar and fat is bad for you. But, you know, I still do it. Uh, but this this show actually started to make me have a, a bit of a panic reaction. So, I mean, you know, I don't know what the solutions are, but hopefully we're going to panic soon enough that we can actually make some changes. Well, the solution, he says, is save Greenland. Greenland is not lost. And so I, I really hope that people hear that. And it is said clearly in the interview, which is that even if this is gone and the pain of adaptation to the consequences will be excruciating. But, you know, there's a big difference between 10 feet and 33 feet. So big difference. 
So that's it for another episode. And I want to thank you for joining us for this installment of Inquiring Minds. You can find us on Twitter at Inquiring Show, on Facebook at slash Inquiring Minds Podcast, and you can send us comments, feedback, future guest ideas, or anything else you'd like to inquiringminds at climatedesk.org. Once again, I want to remind you that this episode of Inquiring Minds was sponsored by The Great Courses, which is bringing the world's top professors right to your fingertips. They have over 500 courses on science, history, philosophy, fine arts, and a lot else, and they are available for digital download and streaming, or the old-fashioned way, DVD and CD. And best of all, you can listen or watch The Great Courses at your own pace, on your own time, no pressure, you don't have to do homework, you don't have to take exams. And for limited time only, The Great Courses is giving you, our listeners, an offer of 80% off the original price of one of its courses, Practicing Mindfulness, an Introduction to Meditation. So to avail yourself of this offer, go to thegreatcourses.com slash inquiringminds and find out more. And once again, that URL just for you is thegreatcourses.com slash inquiringminds. Inquiring Minds is produced by Adam Isaac in cooperation with The Climate Desk, a journalistic collaboration in partnership with The Atlantic, The Center for Investigative Reporting, The Guardian, Grist, Mother Jones, Slate, Wired, and The Huffington Post. Our music is provided by award-winning producer Rian Sheehan. And we're your hosts. I'm Chris Mooney. And I'm Indre Viscontis. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.